like to have us turn to our text for this morning, Luke chapter 2, 8 through 20, Luke chapter 2, 8 through 20, and that's on page 832 if you're following along in the Bibles uh, in the pews here. This is obviously the second half of uh, the Christmas narrative in Luke chapter 2. I was planning to preach on the first seven verses two weeks ago. I guess we'll have to wait a year. But the second half of this chapter, I think, gets at, uh, Renee just prayed and mentioned uh, Epiphany, and we're going to talk a little bit about that church season uh, this morning. And I think this passage uh, sort of unveils what Epiphany is all about. This is what Luke writes to the church back then, as well as to us as the church today. He says, there are shepherds living out in the fields nearby where Jesus is born, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for everything they had heard and seen, which was just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, most of the time I try to avoid reality television. I think that's a good rule of thumb for anybody. Uh, But I think it's especially a good rule of thumb for me because truth be told, there are a few things in this world that make me question my faith in humanity more than reality TV. Um, I see some of those shows and I think, really? This is what we're like, Uh, this is who we are as human beings, this is where we've progressed as a society, and then I start to despair. There is one reality TV show I can't help but get sucked into, though, maybe some of you know it. Love is Blind on Netflix, any of you ever watched that show? Uh, My wife, Sarah, uh, has watched a number of the different seasons, and every time she puts it on, I'll get honest, I I, I get sucked right in, too. The basic premise of the show, it's a, it's a, of course, it's a love and matchmaking reality TV show. The basic premise is that there are 30 contestants, so 15 men and 15 women. And they spend 10 days, just 10 days, dating each other in custom-built pods. Each uh, pod has a couch, a coffee table, and some other furniture, and the contestants sit and they talk with each other. They discuss things like family, religion, work, life experiences, etc., all in an effort to get to know each other. And then, at the end of the 10 days, and it really is just 10 days, if they like each other, they can propose. The twist, though, is that the pods are set up in such a way that they can't see each other. Hence the name, Love is Blind. The idea is to see if you can get to know someone, fall in love with them, and even come to the point of wanting to marry them 
all without knowing what they look like. One of the most interesting parts of the show then is the reveal. That's because for the couples that decide to give it a go, who say yes, who propose and get engaged and decide to get married, there comes a point where finally the producers of the show bring them together so they can finally, for the first time, see each other, what the other one looks like. Well, in the same way, there's a reveal in our text for this morning too. You see, there's a child who has been born in Bethlehem. To the average person, he probably doesn't seem all that noteworthy or significant. He's just another baby born to a pair of peasants. But later that night, in a field not far away, a group of angels surprise a group of shepherds and frighten them. They tell these shepherds that this child who has been born is the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior that God has promised. They tell them to go and visit him. And they even give them a sign by which they can recognize him. So starts the unveiling, the reveal, the epiphany of that child, Jesus Christ. Now, like I said, that's actually the name of the church season we're in right now. We are in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany is one of the lesser-known church seasons, at least in Protestant circles. We're probably more familiar with Advent or Lent or even the season of Christmas. And yes, Christmas is actually a full season. That's why we have that song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, because in the Christian liturgical calendar, it's actually considered a full season of the church year. But after Christmas comes this season, the season of Epiphany. It lasts all the way up till the start of Lent, so whenever Ash Wednesday falls in a year, that's how long Epiphany is. And its purpose, its significance, is to help us discover, realize, or recognize who this child who's been born in Bethlehem, who this Jesus really is. As Philip Reinders writes in his prayer book, Seeking God's Face, Epiphany is a season celebrating the revelation of the Savior, the light of the world. Epiphany begins on January 6th and is marked by several events and themes in the life of Jesus, the visit of the Magi, the baptism of Jesus, and the wedding feast at Cana. Each event unveils the fuller dimensions of the man we call Jesus. He is the worshiped King of Kings, the dearly loved Son of God, and the miracle-working Lord of the feast. Throughout the Feast of Epiphany, we focus on the ministry of Jesus, the calling of the disciples, the teachings of Christ, his miracles, and finally his transfiguration. As we journey through Epiphany, we catch a sight of the uniqueness of Christ. The epiphany of Epiphany is that this is no mere teacher or prophet. This is the Son of God, the Messiah. In other words, Epiphany is the season of the church year where we come to see Jesus not just as a baby in a manger, not just as some infant in Bethlehem, and not just as the firstborn of a peasant uh, girl and her, her carpenter fiance, but instead as so much more than that. That's because Epiphany is the season of the church year where Jesus is revealed to us as the Messiah, as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And as we'll see, that revelation begins here in this text with an angelic visit to some shepherds in a field. 
Luke opens this text after the story of Jesus' birth by writing, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. The first thing that we need to understand uh, in order to, to sort of see what's going on in this text is that shepherds were not very highly regarded in the ancient world. Uh, Joel Green writes about this in his commentary on this passage. He says, shepherds in an agrarian society may have small land holdings, but these would be inadequate to meet the demands of their own families, the needs of their own agricultural pursuits, and the burden of taxation. As a result, they might hire themselves out to work for wages. They were then peasants, located towards the bottom of the scale of power and privilege. Uh, To put it another way, shepherds were poor. Poor enough that they, in a society where most people uh, would have just relied on the income of their land, they had to work two jobs. Most people could simply farm enough for themselves on their property, their families, and then sell a bit for profit. But for whatever reason, shepherds couldn't. Either their land was too small or was of such poor quality uh, that they couldn't rely just on what they produced. And so they would take care of their own land, their own flocks, but then they would also hire themselves out to their neighbors to take care of their flocks too. And so shepherds were on the lower rungs of society. They were the marginally making it, the economically insecure, the barely scraping by, getting along just above the poverty line. They were also viewed as unclean. You see, shepherding was dirty work. We tend these days to think of shepherds in kind of a romantic way when we read scripture, right? You've got Psalm 23, King David, and all the rest, but that's not how people back then saw them. They were considered dirty, First, shepherding required a lot of walking in Palestine's hot, dusty climate, which in turn made shepherds themselves hot and dusty. And then second, it was work with animals, which meant dealing with all the things animals do and produce. And so shepherds were seen as dirty, gross, and easy to discount or ignore. They were on the lower rungs of society, unimportant, marginalized. In other words, they were not the sort of people that you would seek out to announce big news to. And yet that's exactly what happens here. It's to shepherds that these angels come. Not the big wigs, not the powerful, not the influential shepherds. The angels appear to these shepherds to make a birth announcement. Luke writes, an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now this sort of thing was actually at least somewhat common back then. Anytime a child of significance or standing was born, there would be some sort of birth announcement like this. For instance, in his commentary on this passage, Fred Craddock writes, it was customary in the Roman Empire for poets and orators to declare peace and prosperity at the birth of the one who was to become emperor. So when the Roman emperor uh, produced an heir, there would be all sorts of heralds that would line up to announce the birth of this child and the significance of what it meant, and that's what's going on here. Like a king or a ruler, Jesus' birth is being announced. Craddock says, in that familiar pattern, but from heaven, comes the good news of joy and peace occasioned by the birth, not of an emperor, but of him called Savior, Christ, and Lord. 
So this is a birth announcement, patterned after others like it, that someone significant, someone special, someone of standing and rank has been born. The angels are those poets, those orators, those heralds declaring peace and prosperity, good news and joy, comfort and confidence, all because of this child who has been born. But they declare it to shepherds. Why? Is this the shepherds' good news? Is it their joy and peace? Is it their comfort and confidence? Or did these angels somehow get the instructions wrong? Google Maps just didn't quite work. They ended up in the wrong place announcing this news to the wrong sort of people. As Ken Bailey writes in his contextual commentary, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, in Luke 2, 8 through 24, the first people to hear the message of the birth of Jesus were a group of shepherds who were close to the bottom of the social scale in their society. The shepherds heard and were afraid. Initially, they were probably frightened by the, by the sight of the angels, but later they were asked to visit the child. From their point of view, If the child was truly the Messiah, the parents would reject the shepherds if they tried to visit him. How could shepherds be convinced to expect a welcome? That's a fair question, right? I mean, if you are used to being one of the marginalized, one of the forgotten, one of the basement dwellers in your society and culture, and now all of a sudden you're told of, but not only told of, you are actually invited to go and visit the Messiah, the Lord, the Christ, probably the most important person who's ever been born or ever will be born, you might wonder if it's a mistake, right? You might start looking around for the hidden cameras to see who's playing a joke on you. You might assume, understandably, I think, that you are not going to receive a welcome. And so the angel reassures them. This will be a sign to you, he says. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Bailey writes, the angels anticipated the shepherd's anxiety and told them they would find the baby wrapped, which was what peasants, like shepherds, did with their newly born children. Furthermore, they they were told he was lying in a manger, That is, they would find the Christ child in an ordinary peasant home such as theirs. He was not in a governor's mansion or a wealthy merchant's guest room, but in a simple two-room home like their own. This was really good news. Because they would not be told, unclean shepherds, be gone. This was their sign, a sign for lowly shepherds. This is their news. This announcement is for them. There hasn't been some sort of mix-up or mistake. This announcement is for these shepherds because this child, this Messiah, this Savior and King is for them as well. Now, it's at this point that we get kind of a brief interlude here in this text. Uh, You see that sometimes in plays, right? You've got act one and act two, but then between, the playwright will put in some sort of interlude where they kind of sum up the story so far and offer some kind of comment on it. And that's what Luke sort of does in verses 13 and 14. He writes, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. I used this quote a few weeks ago, but one of my seminary professors used to say, at some point you have to just stop talking about the gospel and just start singing about it instead. And that's what the angels do here. 
They've announced the birth of this Messiah to these shepherds. They've told them the good news, and they've told them that that good news is for them. And so now they just start singing. Praise, glory, peace, shalom. It's a song of joy, a song of worship, a song of wonder at what this all means. What does it mean? That line, on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests, is key. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? But what peace means, biblical peace, shalom peace, what it really means is things being made the way they're supposed to be again. Things being restored to the way that God created, intended, and designed them. Things being put back together after all of the brokenness that we experience in this world, right? Think of any of the things in this world that you look at and you go, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not what God intended. It's not supposed to be part of this world, and one day it won't be anymore. All that stuff, that's what the angels are announcing here. That shalom is coming. As Green says in his commentary, On earth, peace meshes with the hope for shalom, peace with justice, universal healing found in the scriptures. Moreover, it is explicitly related to the dominion of God and the coming of salvation is good news. The hope of universal healing lies behind the interpretation of Jesus' significance here. What the angels are saying is that this child is the one who is going to make God's restoration of the world possible. He's the one who will bring it into reality and make it something not just that we hope for someday off in the future, but something that we will actually see and experience through him. Praise, glory, and peace indeed, right? Once we've had that little interlude of praise, the story continues. Luke writes, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was indeed lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So what the shepherds have been told by the angels is confirmed. This child really has been born. He really is wrapped in claws, and he really is lying in a manger. And so if that's true, what else might be? If the angels were right about all of that, what else in their birth announcement might they be right about? If that was just as the shepherds had been told, might the rest of what they've been told be true too? Might this child indeed be Savior? Might he indeed be the Messiah? Might he indeed be Lord and King? And the answer is yes. That's the epiphany here. That's the reveal That's the unveiling that tells us who this child is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. And not just for those that we might expect, but for those we wouldn't too. For peasant parents, for shepherds, for kings and wise men and everyone else as well. As Bailey puts it, this child was born for the likes of the shepherds, the poor, the lowly, the rejected. He also came for the rich and the wise who later appear with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But shepherds 
were welcome at the manger. The unclean were judged to be clean. The outcasts became honored guests, and the song of angels was sung to the simplest of all. I think the question for us to reflect on in response to this text is, who is welcome today? It's easy for us, right, as the good people, the church-going people who are here week after week to understand that we are welcome at the manger, at the birth of this child. But as we see here, it's not just people like us. It's everyone who is willing to respond to the good news, who gets welcome to the manger, the unclean, the rejected, the outcasts, those who are viewed as less than, not liked. Who today is also welcome here like the shepherds were? Because my friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news that we believe as Christians. That's the message of salvation. We have a savior who has come, but he didn't just come for the righteous. And it's a good thing because then none of us would be present with him. He didn't just come for the rich. He didn't just come for the well-to-do, the well-liked, and the well-put-together. He did come for them, but he came for everyone else too. He came for the greedy, the arrogant, and the angry. He came for the lustful, the lazy, and the lackluster. He came for the unkind, the unacknowledged, and the unasked for. He came, in short, again, for all of us who are willing to put our faith in him. That's the epiphany of our Savior, which we celebrate this morning. And that's why the angels call their announcement here good news, because it is. It is good news. In fact, I humbly think it's the best news we could ever hear. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, you reveal yourself to us in so many ways. Reading scripture, we see you reveal yourself to different people throughout the biblical narrative, often face to face. You walk and talk with them. You covenant with them. You enter into relationship with them. You reveal yourself through prophets and priests. As we said earlier in our call to worship, you reveal yourself most truly in your son, Jesus Christ, the exact representation of who you are. And Lord, that's what we see here in this text. The unveiling, the reveal, the epiphany of your son. It's in him that we place our faith. It's in him that we trust. And it's through him that we are capable of having relationship with you. Thank you for your son.